As I thought about the direction of my sermon today and what I hope to convey, I came across this quote by poet Teddy Macker. May my conscience hurt me into grace. May the bees of attention fill the clear comb of the present. May my knees know wood. Said another way, may the inner voice or feeling that acts as a compass for my life and my actions hurt me into grace. I dare say if I'd actually used that phrase as my title, hurt me into grace, there would be far fewer souls in these pews today, I'm pretty sure. May my conscience hurt me into grace. May the bees of attention fill the clear comb of the present. May my knees know wood. No one wants to be hurt. No one wants to admit to brokenness or a muddied conscience. No one wants the bees of attention focused on the present of our shortcomings or fall to our knees in submission to failure or hurt. As a young colleague said earlier this month, ooh, brokenness, that's kind of a downer topic. <laughs> and yet a central aspect of life is brokenness. It's cooked into the very nature of being. And as religious leaders, we're not doing our job if we don't talk about it. The Buddhists call it suffering. Christians name it sin. Hindus embody it as Shiva, the destroyer of worlds, the God who winnows away what you don't need in order for something new to emerge. Reverend Jen Crow proclaims, it's already broken, and my friends, there is no truer truth than ever has been spoken. Brokenness is. And religions have wrestled with this reality over the centuries, and now science seems to confirm it. There is a pattern of continual loss and renewal, death and transformation, filling and emptying. This religious truth of brokenness cooked into reality flies in the face of everything our Western philosophy of progress and consumer culture holds dear. Ideas of reaching an end point of perfection, unending prosperity, always going up and never going down. Even our Unitarian Universalist forefathers proclaimed the continuity of human development, onward and upward, forever. Amen. In order to really get at the wisdom and reality of brokenness and what it means in the spiritual life, I have to go to the old stories, the stories that have emerged from the deep and collective unconscious, the stories that aren't historically true, but are spiritual bedrock. 
the ones that don't care if I like them or not, or have a happy ending or not. Their only concern is getting under my skin and waking me up. So the first story that came to mind as I thought about the realities of brokenness and this being human is from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's the story of Jacob. And Jacob is a bit of a scoundrel. He's likable scoundrel, but he is a scoundrel. Even his name in Hebrew says something about his character, Yahakob, or heel, a heel of a man. Even so, as the story goes, Jacob is blessed. So in this long saga, which I'm not going to go into today, Jacob is in constant conflict with his twin brother, Esau. They're going at it all the time. I mean, even in the womb, the brothers struggle so much, their mother cries out, oh, if this is the way it's going to be, I don't want to live. Mothers, can I hear an amen? <laughs> so in this story, Jacob does something to his brother that he can't take back. And consequences can't be undone. In fact, he's told to do it. Jacob cheats his brother out of his inheritance. He goes so far in this ruse as to place lambskins on his forearms to mimic uh, his brother Esau's hairy forearms so that their blind father will be tricked into bestowing blessing and birthright of lands and wealth on the wrong son on Jacob instead of Esau. When Esau realizes what his brother has done, he is enraged. This swindle cannot be undone according to custom. And Esau swears that he will kill his brother. Now, in order to save their son, Jacob is sent away to his mother's people in Pandanaram to live and marry and prosper as best he can. Even with this bad fallout with his brother, it doesn't change Jacob's propensity to cheat and to massage the truth. And he's tricked all but good a couple of times himself. Still, over the course of the years, he prospers. He amasses wealth. He has two wives and a boatload of kids. Well, some bad blood starts to arise between in-laws and so on, and in a dream, Jacob is told to go back to his homeland, go back to the land of his ancestors, and God will protect him. So Jacob heads back with everything he has, all his family, all his flocks, but he knows he has to handle his re-entry delicately. It's never easy to reconnect with people when you've intentionally cheated them, and they've sworn to kill you. It is delicate, very, very delicate. So Jacob sends servants ahead of him ahead of his caravan to speak with his brother Esau 
and soften the message of his return. And the messengers come back to Jacob and say, we talked to your brother Esau and he's on his way to meet you. Great, Jacob thinks, just great. And he has 400 men with him. Great, just great. Well, let's just say Jacob is pretty sure he's toast. He's fairly certain he will be killed. He prays. He sends three herds of sheep and goats to his brother in this staggered choreography of gifts to maybe wear his brother down and somehow get in his good graces. But he doesn't run away. Jacob sends his family and flocks away for safety, and he waits for his brother alone. Now we come to the most famous part of the story. In the night, a man appears. For all Jacob knows, this could be his brother Esau, who snuck into his camp. The men begin to wrestle and fight, and they fight all night long. They fight until daybreak. And when the man realizes that he cannot get the best of Jacob, he strikes Jacob in the hollow of his thigh and throws his hip out of joint, crippling him. It becomes clear in the passage that this man is not Esau. In fact, this is no ordinary man at all. Jacob is in a fight for his life. Perhaps he's wrestling with his conscience. Perhaps he's being hurt into grace. Perhaps he is wrestling with God. The man says, let me go. It's daybreak. And in a very famous line, Jacob responds, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the man asks, what's your name? And he answers, Yaakov, heel of a man. And the stranger responds, no longer. From now on, your name is God Wrestler. For you have wrestled with God, and you have come through. And do you know what that name is? It is the name Israel. Israel, God contender, God wrestler. And Jacob is blessed. In the morning, Jacob looks up and he sees Esau and his 400 men making their way towards him. Limping and bowing, Jacob approaches his brother, bracing for the worst. And Esau comes running, but instead of killing Jacob, Esau embraces his brother. I was talking with my dear coming-of-age assistant, Emma Stout, who is studying Judaism right now, and this story happened to come up. And she said something like, why on earth would anybody put Jacob in the Bible? Why would anyone hold up that character? 
He's such a liar. He's such a cheat. And I sat with this question for a moment and then said, you know, this story says to me that it doesn't matter how broken you think you are. It doesn't matter how wrong-headed, how many times you mess up, the woundedness you carry, the brokenness inherent in being, good and grace can still work in and through your life. The mystery I sometimes call God can still work in and through my brokenness. You see, inside brokenness, there is some kind of spiritual opening, some kind of deep invitation into something more. Theologian Richard Rohr writes, none of us goes into our spiritual maturity completely of our own accord or by totally free choice. Most of us fall into spiritual maturity by some kind of transgression, believe it or not, like Jacob finding his birthright through cunning and Esau losing his through failure. Those who walk the full and entire journey are considered chosen in the Bible, perhaps destined in world literature, but always they are the ones who have heard some deep invitation to something more and set out to find it by both grace and daring. This soul work, this invitation hidden within brokenness happens in some predictable ways. Out of nowhere, it seems, we are thrust into a wrestling match. It's dark. We can't see what's going on. We don't know what end is up. We just know that we're in it. It might feel like a fight. Or perhaps you might experience it as this soul engagement. And if you decide to accept the invitation to wrestle till daybreak, by grace and daring, there will be wounding and there will also be blessing. The invitation may be thrust upon you as a divorce. The invitation may be recognizing a pattern that once served you in the past that is now strangling the life out of you. It may be a microaggression or a major collision with a racist framework. It might be alcohol. It may be that you cut yourself. It may be that you have a serious mean streak. It may be a death that rocks you to your very core. invitation comes in many forms and I can
can think of many times when I've sidestepped a spiritual invitation and just as many times when I've been thrust into a wrestling match, whether I like it or not. So I tell this next story with permission from my partner. Early in my relationship with Rebecca, about four years in, I had gone away to be in a theater production in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was a two-month stint. And in those days, there were no cell phones. It was a really long time ago. <laughs> and in those days, there was no email. It was really, really a long time ago. <laughs> there were just letters and long-distance phone calls that were expensive, and we were poor. So Rebecca visited once within that two-month separation, but for the most part, we were separated. And in that time of separation, I found myself questioning this new relationship that was totally outside my imagination of what my adult life was going to look like. I found myself asking, am I really gay? I can't believe this. No. No, I, 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 no, I don't think this is true. No, in fact, I don't think this is what I want. Yeah, I want a husband. I want a blender, and I want two kids. That's what I want. So I, I came home from the production, and I said to Rebecca, I don't, know if, if, I don't know if this relationship is right for me. I don't know if I'm gay. And in one conversation that I will always uh, remember, we were driving down Highway 94, and we had to pull over to the side of the highway because we were both weeping so hard. And I said, I, I think I should move out. I'm just hurting you too much. And I just don't want to do that. Now, for, for some, ending a relationship is a spiritual relationship. It's the spiritual invitation. For me, with a pattern of jumping in and out of relationships, the invitation was altogether different. Rebecca said something like, can you just wait? Can you just wait one month before you move out? 30 days, that's all I'm asking. For me, that request was the opening. That was the invitation to go deep, to do the soul work, to wrestle with my conscience, to wrestle with God, to wrestle with my brokenness, and not let go until I was blessed. And I have been blessed. To live 
live into our brokenness, to take the spiritual invitation to something more, does not mean a happy ending, necessarily. It does not mean never experiencing hardship again, nor does it mean an end to brokenness. That's not the way the system is set up. Brokenness is. In the final verses of the Bible story, Jacob does not bask in reconciliation with Esau, nor accept his brother's invitation to journey onward together. Jacob moves on. He makes his home in another region, and brokenness and challenge visit him again. The deep spiritual invitation is not perfection. It is not onward and upward forever. Spiritual depth is consciously forgiving and living with imperfection. Spiritual depth is being awake. It is finding wholeness in the ever-present brokenness. No one can accept the invitation for you. That is yours alone. But once you accept the invitation, there are guides, there are people, there is wisdom around you to be with you on the journey. It may seem like there is no end in sight, that daybreak will never come, but we come together in spiritual community to whisper into the silence. Hold on. Have faith. The rain will come. Winds will change. This is work of the Spirit. Heaven is alive. Heaven is alive in this broken and beautiful world.